Hey, this is a Hakawadi production. Hey, everybody. Hope you're super well. Thanks for joining me today. I know we're all trying to make sense of this whole staying at home thing and figuring out our wacky new schedules. So it really means a lot to me that you're here. I think you'll really enjoy today's show because we're talking about some of the world's best cuisine. And I know food is taking up a big part of our lives right now. Everyone's on social media sharing great recipes. Families finally have time to cook and eat together every day. And some people are shamelessly binging on junk food. So for better or worse, good food is kind of holding everything together right now, I think. And we're in the Middle East, so we're especially lucky. Everyone knows the food here is one of the best in the world. And no one has perfected it quite like my next guest. He's the author of two cookbooks. The first one, called Jerusalem, was co-written with his business partner, Yotam Odolenghi, in 2012. That book arguably has the ultimate recipe for hummus, And once you try it, I promise you will never go back. His latest book, Palestine, is even better in my opinion. Not only does it have amazing traditional Palestinian recipes that have been just slightly tweaked for modern tastes, but it also has some great little stories about things that are happening in Palestine that you'd never hear of otherwise. Please welcome superstar Palestinian chef and the co-founder of Odolenghi in London, Sami Tamimi. Hi, Sami. Hi. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So how are you guys doing with all this crazy stuff that's happening right now? I mean, unfortunately uh, for Palestine, the book came out in the UK and Europe. Bad timing because the coronavirus kind of everything happened so quickly. And it was just two days before the launch, which is the 26th of March. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just couldn't do anything. Yeah. So there's actually a field called nutritional psychiatry that's all about how certain food can prevent depression and enhance your mood. You know, it, it releases dopamine and serotonin. Do you think that food really makes people happy in your experience as a chef? Of course. I mean, also, um, what type of food? I mean, we associate the food with our kind of where, where we grew up, first of all, and also holidays and Quite often, when you think of sunny places, you, the food tastes much better. And it's not always kind of down to uh, the quality of the ingredients, but, you know, the rice sun kind of hitting your skin or surrounding you and the heat kind of makes things even uh, more delicious. And the same way when you think of ski holidays and you're eating kind of really kind of heavy, rich food and it, it, it tastes really delicious. So it, it depends where you are. But uh, in the Middle East, we, we have the sunshine, which is good mm. for a lot of the produce that we're using. And they eat a lot less meat. I mean, not these days they, they eat more, but in the past, their diet contained quite a lot of healthy things. Like they used to forage for things, the greens and all sorts of uh, plants. And they have all the pulses and the grains, and this is their, their their diet. Yeah. So yeah, it is it is healthy, and you know, olive oil and lemon and garlic, all kind of really nutritious things. Definitely. So you talk in the book also about how there are differences in kind of the foods throughout the region, throughout Palestine, kind of like there would be in Italy or in Germany, where you have you know different flavors, um, which is interesting because people usually lump all Middle Eastern food together. Yeah. 
So one of the things I noticed in your book, fish, for example, is a Mediterranean staple, but in Middle Eastern cuisine, it's really localized. And in the case of Palestine, it's really mostly in Gaza Strip because it's by the sea and, and there's a culture of fishermen there. Um, can you tell me a little bit the story that you tell in your book about, about Gaza Strip's uh, fisherman culture? It's uh, quite bad because, they are, I mean, unfortunately, they're hit by one side is Israel and the other side is Egypt. And their fishing kind of season, they basically give them time, specific time to fish. So they, they don't have always the, the access to what the sea kind of offers. But what they have, they make wonderful things with. It's the same story in Acre and in Jaffa. With Jaffa now, it's Israel. But uh, these three places are on the coastal. They're very well known for fish and seafood and kind of dishes that comes from the sea. And I guess they're kind of not able to really live off of it as much as they did in the past because of the restrictions on travel and, and bringing the fish, for instance, to other cities uh, inland. Yeah, I mean, um, a, a lot of the, the locals lived off the sea and now nowadays they don't, they don't, they can't do it because, you know, they're restricted for, you know, how many hours they can be in the sea. Yeah. I mean, in Gaza especially, they're, they're quite uh, in a bad situation in a way because they still manage to maintain, you know, the farms. They kind of uh, invented new ways to keep surviving and keep uh, kind of producing uh, enough food to keep them going because, you know, it's locked, so there's no in and out. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, yeah. the people talk about smuggling and all that things, but... When you see a, a fisherman now kind of try to grow tomatoes instead. Yeah. And this is kind of just surviving. Well, it's a shame because you, the, the recipes you have in your book look so, so good, including there's one with tahini, which I love, baked fish with tahini. And um, you have actually a story about a tahini maker um, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yes, yes. Tell me about him. He's a very nice, kind of cool guy that worked in Israel, Tel Aviv for many years in restaurant. And then he had enough and he wanted to go back uh, to Jerusalem. He's from East Jerusalem and uh, he um, grouped with a hotel in East Jerusalem and opened a restaurant there, but they fell out. And then he wanted to open his own restaurant. But, you know, the reality there is like East Jerusalem at the moment is kind of ghost town. So there aren't a lot of kind of people coming, especially in to the east side to eat in restaurants. So he's in East Jerusalem? Yeah. But he has a beautiful shop, right? Yeah. And then he decided that he can't afford to open a restaurant and basically close it down. So he wanted to to do something else. He was always fascinated by tahini and he wanted to learn the trade. So he went to Nablus and he basically worked for free with this kind of old guy that had a little tahini mill. And he learned the trade and then he um, connected with people from Turkey and he ordered this uh, grinder, this, the big kind of vessel stone. And he taught himself how to do it, but he did it cleverly because he he tempered the the stone so he can you know it's like a cold press. Yeah, sixty degrees Celsius. Yeah, which is in the old days they didn't have this luxury. He's got the computer. Basically, yeah, he's like the fancy of... tahini guy. 
Yeah. He even brought the sesame seeds. It's like an Ethiopian variety, right? Called correct, correct. I, I really, yeah. I, I was super interested in this. And then the the grinder he uses, he had it made in Syria based on a Turkish machine. Yeah, a Turkish guy made it for him in Syria, and then they have to ship it to Jerusalem. And he was telling me about how difficult was it to, for him to bring it into Israel, and it was it just took like three years probably. They make it so um, hard for everybody around yeah. that, uh, you know, wherever they can, they can do it. It's such a they shame. They will do it. But, but then when he opened the shop, the, the shop is really, really busy. He opened it in, in an area called Abu Ghosh, which is um, on a border of Israeli settlements. And it's very popular with Jewish because they, there's a couple of uh, very famous homeless places. Most of his, his customers are Jews. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, we know they love hummus, right? I mean, there's always this like argument. They they want to try to claim it. Hummus war. Yeah, the hummus war. Actually, I was in a hotel in Berlin uh, a couple of years ago for work. It was an Israeli-owned hotel, and and they had tahini uh, on everything on their burgers. They were serving it on with French fries as a dip, which was oddly mm -hmm. good. Um, do you think that the cuisines in that part of the world have kind of merged? Uh... Israeli chefs take um, Palestinian dishes. They don't change them at all. They just present them as new Israeli cuisine. They even call them by the Arabic names, like tahine and malube and tzachan. All these dishes that, you know, they're kind of rooted in the Arab culture. And they basically adapted them and, and called them a new Israeli cuisine. Hmm. And I think this is kind of not right. I'm talking now about the chefs. I mean, they should just give a credit to Definitely. where the dish came from. Definitely. First of all, the whole question with the oppression and is Israel and Palestine, this is something that kind of a, a little bit bigger than just kind of two chefs or three chefs that made it in, in the UK and they sell in Palestinian dishes as Israeli new cuisine. As long as there is one side is stronger than the other, then where do you draw the line here? Yeah, definitely. It's very difficult, right, to export any Palestinian products. I mean, in your book, again, you talk about olive oil, which is kind of almost like the wine of the food world. It's, they have, you know, so many different varieties of olives. The way you press it is so important to the level of acidity is, you know, so particular. And, you know, you, you say, and which I believe, Palestine has some of the most wonderful olive oil, and yet the world never gets to get a taste of it. How hard is it to export anything from, from it, Palestine? It's very hard. I mean, I'm working with a company called Zaytun here. The fair trade, they basically go to Palestine and, and work with the farmers to buy, you know, the best quality for the best price. And uh, they have a lot of difficulties bringing, you know, the goods to here. Why is it I mean, so last hard? Last time I talked to them was about a month ago. They said that uh, they uh, enforced this new law in Israel that they can't export any olive oil. So like a whole What? kind of container was sitting in the port there and they couldn't do anything about it for three months. And then all of a sudden they changed the law again and then they could kind of bring it to the UK. So it, it's very hard, it kind of heartbreaking also uh, process because the farmers rely on the disputers and the importers kind of just stuck in the way. It's kind of a, the, the olive oil also is not cheap because of that. It costs them a lot of money to bring it to Europe. Yeah, with all so the they bribes, have they probably have to pay, to pay to get it out. Yeah, they have <laughs> to pay for it somehow. I mean, we are also, Otolengi, we 
we try to use as much Palestinian products as possible to help the little farmers there. Yeah, that's great. And I noticed you have some, some products on your website, otolangi.com, right? We never use any Israeli products in our food. Despite the fact that your partner is uh, Israeli? I mean, he he's in the UK because he doesn't really agree. I mean, I'm the cut off himself, but, you know, we are big supporters of Palestinians and we are like family and what's going on with Israel and Palestine is kind of really sad. And uh, we totally disagree with, with the way Israel kind of yeah it's it's really uh, a shame but, but the good thing about your book is that it really highlights the good things that are happening and um it reminds people of all the beautiful things there that need to be preserved and need to be uh, put out there including uh the story of um vivian uh, yeah. a, a, a a woman the seeds who, lady yeah the seeds lady she went to yeah. the u.s to do a phd and she was studying seeds and then she realized that she preferred to like be actually having her hands in the earth and and dealing with the seeds for real rather than uh, analyzing them and studying them and so she came back and she's bringing like heirloom vegetables back yeah what she does is really important because she basically goes around and talk to people and uh, collect all these uh, forgotten seeds of vegetables and fruit that because of the difficulties also in, with the farmers and the lands and everything, people don't farm these uh, fruit and vegetables. So she takes the seeds and kind of cultivate them and then go to farmers and work with them to basically encourage them to farm these seeds. That's really nice. She actually, yeah. you quote her talking about um, farmers and how they're be they're being transformed into like their own agents to becoming like day laborers on their own farms basically because they have to keep producing these crops that are kind of commercial like strawberries year round which grow in greenhouses this kind of project kind of brings back vegetables and produce that you'll not find anywhere else in the world yeah exactly and also you know all the uh, old varieties of uh, vegetables and fruit they, they taste a lot better and you know okay they don't have them for six months a year but at least you know they are full of flavor and it's also part of the heritage yeah well the way you describe your country um and the food there i really wish i could go like on a road trip to palestine stay at banksy's waldorf hotel in jerusalem which you mentioned in the book it's in bethlehem it's in bethlehem near the wall, next to the wall, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, and go to all these restaurants and, and meet all these people that you talk about because it just looks like a beautiful experience and uh, a real culinary journey. So I hope one day there'll be some kind of resolution to this issue and this will be possible. I want people to be interested in it and not kind of, there's quite a lot of bad propaganda around and bad news and For me, this is home and uh, I know how wonderful it is and how colorful and tasty as well. It's super and tasty. I, yeah, I would like people to basically read more and uh, wanting to know more and um, hopefully also to go to visit as well. Your book certainly makes it look attractive and the recipes in there are amazing. I've tried three myself already, including falafel, which turned out amazing, shockingly. Oh, nice. Yeah, and it was super easy. So thank you so much for joining me today. It was really a lot of fun. I love how your book not only has so many incredible recipes, but it really honors the country you, you were born in in the best way possible. Thank you very much for having me. 
If you like hummus, you should definitely check out Sami Tamimi's new book, Palestine. It has 110 recipes that you can actually make on a day-to-day basis that are guaranteed to make you feel happier and impress your guests, even if those are imaginary for now. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to The Men's Room and follow us on Instagram at hakawadi.fm and the Nadia Michelle. I wish you all peace, happiness, and good food. <laughs>